ho ho and welcome to a festive episode of lost in science yeah we are feeling jolly with the season aren't we Stu? uh yes we are <laughs> you sound a bit jollier than that if you want yeah no it is it is getting to that time of year the, uh, you know the silly season is probably the best name for it so, someone said, why do they always put Christmas at the time of year when the shops are always so busy? It's really annoying. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? Um, it is yeah, weird. Should, it's weird, yeah. They should try and change that. Um, maybe get more Easter eggs in the shop around Christmas time. I think that would be that would be a nice thing to do. Uh, it'll certainly fill up the uh, the letters to the editor pages. That's right. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, we are, as Stu said, in the silly season. And so we have searched high and low for some vaguely thematic science. I mean, we've been doing this many years, haven't we, Stu? And I think we've used up the obvious kind of Christmas or adjacent thing. Yeah, yeah. Can reindeer fly? No. Yeah. No, they yeah. can't. <laughs> what's What's the solstice? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. All of that yeah. stuff. We've hit that. We've 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 pumped that well dry. Yeah. How do you make a Christmas pudding? <laughs> that was my contribution last year. Yeah. It was yeah. good. It was good. It was very good pudding. Scraping the bottom of the bowl. Um, so what have you got off with so this year as an attempt, Stu? As I've probably pointed out in previous years, Christmas in Australia is totally at the wrong time of year. And we've just imported a whole bunch of European traditions into the wrong season in the wrong hemisphere. And one of those things is the Christmas tree. And I was going to just jump into a little bit about Christmas trees. And and there is a little bit of uh, quite a lot of science about this uh, as well. Uh, The question of what is better, a real tree for Christmas or a fake tree, which is better, which is the better choice. And also uh, uh, the burning question that everyone has is, what does that have to do with Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang? Okay. Look, I am very grateful for this story. This is something that I have wondered myself, so I'm very keen to hear the answer to this question. Um, you, you will love the answer. <laughs> it's one of those great scientific answers. You'll have Fantastic. to stay tuned, really. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you for that, Stu. And I also have you to thank for the story that I am going to be covering. This, I believe, was your suggestion. Um, we are... All reports say in the in the midst of an El Nino climate phenomenon. Uh, El Nino being related to Christmas, as it turns out, uh, as you correctly surmised. Um, it was originally named, apparently, for some warm currents that were seen to occur by fishermen down the coast of Peru around about Christmas time. And so they referred to this current as El Nino. Um, it's now been kind of more i suppose specifically the the larger weather phenomenon that we're familiar with now which is not necessarily an annual event but uh at least in that part of the world is associated with some some warm currents around that time of year i think people have had bad experiences with previous el ninos the funny thing is the the el nino effect that they get in peru is quite different to the to the El Nino effect we get. So they actually get different weather patterns to what we get, but we call it the same thing because it's the same cycle. If that yeah, it's the, same, yeah. it's the same phenomenon overall, water phenomenon, Pacific Ocean phenomenon. Yeah. But yeah, look, it is, it is got some specific effects it's associated with, but we're, what we're seeing this year is some things that perhaps don't match that pattern necessarily. Mm. So look, I thought I would, um, yeah, have a look at deeper into the El Nino and get to the bottom of what's going on. 
as much as it is possible to understand the weather. Anyway, so that's what we have, a, a festy show for you this, this week. So let's, uh, let's get on with it. Christmas in Australia is weird. Uh, let's just get that out of the way before we go any further. We have completely imported a holiday, co-opted from traditional festivals of winter from the Northern Hemisphere in Europe. It's been plonked down in the Southern Hemisphere on the same date, but literally the opposite time of year. And we have adapted zero of those traditions for our geographic reality. The commercial properties of Australia and homes as well are decked with boughs of holly and artificial snow and men in red fur-lined suits and, of course, Christmas trees. Hmm. The Christmas tree in Europe was a symbol of life persisting through the winter uh, while many trees in Europe lose their leaves to conserve energy. Conifers, which is what most Christmas trees are, are evergreen, so they don't lose their leaves in winter. Um, so bringing branches or whole trees indoors in the winter would be something to focus on and often came with uh, a pleasant aroma, a piney smell, if you chose the right species, obviously. So just, yeah, just on that, is there, there's not a particular species that is the canonical Christmas tree. It's just any old conifer. Is that right? It, it, honestly, it depends where you are, because obviously there's different species in different parts of Europe particularly, which is where all these traditions seem to come from. So different species of conifers, and conifers are, you know, cone-producing plants. That's what the name means. They're botanically called gymnosperms. Um, they're non-flowering plants, mostly evergreens and often trees. But you've got your, you've got your pines, uh, fir trees and spruce, and basically whatever's around is what people used as Christmas trees, depending on the part of Europe you care to look and in germany it was fir trees that were their tannin bombs uh their are loyal tannin bombs i don't know uh in the in the 19th century in germany though a growing middle class increased demand for fir trees because people had bigger houses and they want bigger christmas trees and fir tree forests were depleted every year as decorations for midwinter are more or less, you know, when Christmas falls. So they were chopping down all their fir forests wow. in Germany. And this led to the invention of artificial Christmas trees. And um, these artificial Christmas trees, these German artificial Christmas trees of the 19th century were made of goose feathers, which were dyed green and attached to uh, wooden dowels arranged around a trunk in the shape of a fir tree. See, I would, I would imagine there would be more fir trees in Germany than there were geese. Well, you know, it would have reduced the demand on the tree population, but it was probably something of a concern to the goose population, you would think. But, you know, of, of course, we are talking naturally occurring forests and geese are bred as well mm. as, as, you know, livestock. So you, you're sort of replenishing the supply of geese, but maybe no one was replenishing the supply of forests. Um so the artificial tree spread to the UK. Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, was of German heritage and they imported quite a few traditions from uh, 
the German people uh, and they sort of became part of British tradition and the decorating the tree was a was a particularly German thing which they adopted. People did it all over the place, but that was where it came from in, in Britain. Um, but artificial trees, the idea of artificial trees soon took off on their own and many different versions appeared uh, as you move into the 20th century, including bristle trees. There was a, there was a company who made toilet brushes <laughs> and they went, oh, we could make Christmas trees using the same technology, using animal hair and twisted oh, wire. Yeah. Very creative. I mean, you know, good, good little earner for the, for the brush company, I suppose. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as technology advanced, we had aluminium trees in the late 50s, um, which were very fashionable and popular uh, until a Charlie Brown TV Christmas special, which aired in the mid-1960s, basically put an end to the popularity of aluminium trees in the US. Because So Charlie Brown in the show actually chooses a live Christmas tree as the centrepiece of this play that he's putting on. And, you know, everyone shuns, sort of dismisses the aluminium tree as being fake and awful and tacky. And everyone who watched the show went, oh, we can't have one of those aluminium Christmas trees. So they didn't, no one bought them. They all went for live trees again for a little while. And nobody ever wanted an aluminium tree ever again. Wow. Um, so, yeah, Charlie Brown, powerful, powerful force for, <laughs> for the anti-aluminium Christmas tree movement. Good grief. Um, good grief, indeed. Um, but, of course, by far the most commonly found most commonly bought artificial Christmas trees, the fake plastic tree, usually made of PVC or polyvinyl chloride, sometimes polyethylene, different plastics, doesn't really matter, with varying degrees of realism from the hyper-real to the absolutely unrealistic tree. Um, they're basically green and Christmas tree shaped, I suppose, is the, is the defining feature. Now, fake Trees are still very popular and thousands, thousands and thousands are sold each year. Sometimes um, people claim that they are more environmentally friendly than real trees because you're not cutting anything down. And looking back on the tradition of the German tree, this may be sort of a hangover of that concept. Now, they may have started as a way to preserve trees, but the production of plastic trees is not exactly an environmental success story, especially especially if we look at carbon emissions. So a, a live growing tree is a carbon sink. That is, it removes carbon from the atmosphere and turns it into tree, particularly the woody parts of the tree, which are mostly carbon. So, you know, photosynthesis turns carbon dioxide and water into sugar and, and oxygen and that's also what the tree uses for energy, but it also gets turned into wood. Now, a plastic tree, on the other hand, can produce around 40 kilograms of atmospheric carbon by using fossil fuels for production and transport. Now, most trees are manufactured in China and shipped around the world. That's a lot of carbon production per tree. And it's, now, um, it's made from plastic, which is itself derived from like hydrocarbons and like um, things dug out of the ground. So it's not, unlike the, the, the live tree, which is getting its carbon from the atmosphere, this one is getting its carbon from fossil fuel sources. Yes, but we 
don't need to dig that up in the first place. We could leave it where it is and it would not cause any net change. Mm. So there is that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, people say, well, you know, but the real tree will break down and release that carbon back to the atmosphere. So if a real tree ends up in landfill, in the worst case scenario, decays into methane, which is the most potent greenhouse gas you can have decaying organic matter turning into, it actually won't even produce half the equivalent greenhouse emissions. So it'll produce a, a maximum of about 16 kilograms of CO2 equivalent if it is basically anaerobically decomposing in landfill, which is not great. Uh, and and there are better ways that you can get rid of it. Even if you burn it, it doesn't produce as much as the methane. So how much did the, did the plastic tree? 40, 40 kilograms in right, manufacture okay. and transport. So maximum of 16 kilograms in the worst case scenario for a live tree. Now, of course, artificial trees are likely to end up in landfill as well because PVC as a plastic is non-recyclable. So... As you said, the plastic is also storing some carbon, but it's not really enough to offset the amount of carbon released in production. Yeah, it doesn't weigh 44 kilograms. No, it does not. Uh, It's been estimated that an artificial tree would need to be reused for 10 to 20 years to balance the emissions it produces compared to getting a real tree every year. And most people just don't hang on to Christmas trees for that long. Uh, the other, the, the, I guess the problem is plastic trees, artificial trees are very cheap and, and real trees are more expensive and that will always draw people to get the cheap tree. And because they are so cheap, it means people will throw them away and replace them as well. So there's, there's a sort of a marketing problem there as, uh, you know, on that side of it. Now on the, on the downside for real trees, most of the, most of the Christmas trees you see in Australia are Pinus radiata. Pinus radiata is an exotic species in Australia. It comes from overseas. It's not a native Australian plant. Uh, It can be an environmental weed in many areas. So if the trees grow big enough to produce pine cones, they will produce seeds and those plants can spread into the environment and be invasive in uh, natural bushland areas. So there's a bit of a problem from there. And also the pine plantations themselves tend to exclude other plants and animals they're not really a, a habitat tree for for native species because they're not native trees so nothing here is really adapted you often get you often get a sort of a a, a, a very oversimplified ecosystem where you get rabbits and foxes and blackberries and pine trees and that's a very common mm. uh, sort of guild that you that develops now, growing trees can also use a lot of water, which is not a great thing if you're in Australia, but Pinus radiata is generally pretty drought tolerant, which is why it's an environmental weed. Um, but they often are given extra irrigation to green them up prior to sale. So you make them look all nice and lush and green just before you sell them. So they do actually use some. And there's also additional emissions from transport. Obviously, most of these plantations are close to, you know, urban centres where the market for Christmas trees is though, so it's not a huge amount of transfer, certainly not on the scale of bringing them from China, Um, but also pruning and shaping operations. There might be fertiliser involved and things like that, but they grow them for about seven or so years before they get cut down and resold, and when they do cut them down, they replant a new tree because that's what they do for a living. Um, But I think if if you weigh everything up, I think real trees slightly edge out artificial trees in the environment states. But of course, 
you know, the traditions themselves might be what we should focus on changing rather than going, oh, what's better, a, a fake plastic conifer or a real conifer? Maybe we could look at, you know, the opportunities to use local plants that are Australian. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about because there is a bit of a move to that. Is that possible? Because I've seen a lot of people, for instance, like the, um, the woolly bush from WA, but does that survive as an indoor Christmas tree, can you move it around like that or is it just going to be in your garden? How is that going to work? That, yeah, they, they, you know, most plant, most trees will not live for very long indoors. So, you know, the 12 days of Christmas might be your absolute limit to keeping them indoors and then you've got to get them back out and then you've got to get them to adjust to being back outside again as well. Um, the, the issue also is growing them quick enough to, to get, you know, a, a turnover so you can have a product to sell every year. So the woolly bush is a great looking plant, but it doesn't actually grow that fast. So if you did have one, you'd want to keep it for a few years as it got bigger, um, possibly. But yeah, there's plenty of ways, you know, there's plenty of other plants that we could potentially uh, harness for that and, and think about some summer friendly ideas to decorate the house and celebrate in a more seasonally and geographically appropriate way. There's plenty of Australian plants that we could think of that are that are looking great at this time of year. And we don't need to go, oh, we've got to bring in this plant because it's so cold and dingy outside. I am very glad. I think we can all thank Charlie Brown. Putting an end to aluminium trees, that sounds like not, not a very pleasant thing to have in your house. It sounds very pointy and sharp. But even if his live tree choice in the cartoon made the ending of it a little bit sappy. Oh, dear. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the uh, scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and we are talking about... The El Nino, I'm going to say climate phenomenon rather than weather phenomenon. Stu, what, tell me, what do you know about um, El Nino from maybe from your Spanish classes? <laughs> well, I know El Nino means the boy. And apparently uh, in, in South America, it brings rain. Um, and they basically they were referring to the baby Jesus as the boy bringing rain which made all of the crops grow and all the farmers were all very happy and they celebrated and called it El Nino and that's where it sort of got its name from. The The flip side is that they called the dry years La Nina, which is the girl. I don't know why the girls took the blame for the drought years but in, in South America, but that's how that's how those names came about as far as I know. Yeah, it seems to be like a bit of... Um, uh maybe some debate around the etymology. As I said in the introduction, um, from what I could find, a lot of the name El Nino was a specific current, um, which then got brought into this weather phenomenon. It's a sort of La Nina was then chosen kind of just in opposition to El Nino because they had to call it something else. But uh, I suppose El Nino is the more significant one because El Nino is very much a departure from the usual weather slash climate conditions that we see in, in the Pacific area. So this is something that is the atmosphere and the ocean working together. And you get a bit of a kind of a feedback loop when they work together. But the normal conditions, so the way it's, the way it's um, 
works when it's not El Nino, let's put it that way, is based on something called the Walker Circulation, named after one Gilbert Walker who described it back around the turn of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and so it's essentially this atmospheric circulation with involving these easterly winds, so winds that go from east to west across the Pacific, uh, known as the trade winds you may have heard of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so they blow from east to west, and they blow the in their, blow, their blowing, um, they move water across the surface of the ocean. Right, as, um, as wind is wont to do, yes. Exactly. Uh, as the water moves across... It heats as it goes, travels along the surface of the, of the ocean. And what you get is a pileup of warm water on the west side of the ocean in the Australia-type area. Right. So hotter water and actually more water. Like it, apparently the, the western side is often about 60 centimetres higher than the eastern side. Um, yeah, so it's hotter water at the, south, at the Australian coast. Um, the other side, at South America, you get uh, colder water, but you also get um, not just colder because it's the other it would have been heated but you also have to replace it you you get water from the deep welling up so cold water from the deeper ocean welling up at south america uh now the air then um, from australia it rises from the hot water in the east on the east side and sorry in the west side of the ocean which is the east coast of australia yeah get my directions right here it yep. goes up in the atmosphere and descends as cool air cool, dry air in the, in the eastern side of the Pacific Ocean, which is South America. So this gives you your um, drier conditions in South America and wetter conditions in Australia, is the general gist of the thing. Yeah. So El Nino is what happens when this walker circulation basically weakens or, in fact, disappears. So then what happens is you get the, the hottest water is in the middle of the Pacific, so the air rises there and then kind of descends around there. So they basically you then get air descending, the dry air descending on Australia and then going the opposite direction from west from Australia into the middle of the Pacific, from west to east. So essentially the, the normal winds in our part of the ocean reverse. Um, so you then you have, instead of having the, the, the warm water with the, the, the moist air, um, you get dry air coming down and the wind going the other direction. Yep. So the basically what you get then is the hotter, wetter air against South America and drier air over Australia. Uh, it generally leads to drier conditions in Australia, wetter conditions in South America. Um, you also, in Australia, due to the, the way these complicated climate things work, you get hotter days and colder nights. Uh, often El Nino is occurs in our kind of winter and spring. And so it can be associated, say, with frost. Uh, so not only can you say if you drier conditions, um, particularly you know in the winters when we are used to getting more rainfall in the in the southern parts of Australia, um, but you're also then more prone to frost because you have colder nights because there's no cloud coverage, and so it is not great for agriculture generally in Australia. Um, but as I said, there is a difference between climate and weather. And the weather doesn't always follow the rules in this sense, because there's a lot of other drivers on the climate and on the weather that are, that are affecting this. So if you just look at this year, for instance, we have had a lot of rain in November. We had some record rains in some places for November. Mm. Um, 
which is yeah not associated with uh, we think of with uh, El Nino. And also another thing with a lesser known um, aspect of El Nino is it's supposed to make tropical cyclones less likely in around Australia. Um, and particularly cyclones up in Queensland crossing the coast, which we've just had cyclone Jasper around the Cairns area. So it, yeah, it's not following the rules is what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah. So it comes back to the idea that climate, again, is just kind of your overall likelihood of how you expect things to go, whether it is the fine-grained, what's actually going to happen on the day. Um, so yeah, like I said, there are other drivers... It's hard to unpack what all the things going on here are. Like one of the other main ones that people look into in terms of Australia is something called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is a similar kind of thing we're talking about with El Nino. I won't go into great detail about um, the way uh, Indian Ocean Dipole works, except that with the current di Indian Ocean Dipole conditions, it's also meant to make Australia drier, and that clearly didn't work. Um, essentially, again, it comes back to the fact that these things tend to make these things Australia drier on average, but uh, it's not a guaranteed thing. In fact, if you look back at history at the different El Nino years, they are indeed drier on average, but only about half of them cor correspond to droughts, really, or to, it's not a direct proportional relationship of the severity of an El Nino to the, the dryness of it. So there's other different factors that, that need to be taken into account. Now, I've had a look at what the Bureau of Meteorology have had to say about the current climate conditions and climate outlook. Um, they're still predicting, due to El Nino, um, drier weather in the, in the months ahead. But in terms of why we've had the, the wet weather recently, um, one of the explanations they put forward is that there's been some um, warmer, wetter air moving um, uh, across the Tasman Sea, which has brought with it you know, more amounts of water leading to more rainfall. And you know, this could be due to things like um, what's going on around the South Pole, um, or it could be due to things like the fact that we've had a warmer than average year globally and the oceans and the, the generally the temperatures have been higher. So and there's, that's actually there's, actually... there's actually more warm moist air in the atmosphere as well like there's more moisture in the atmosphere because it's been so warm globally. exactly exactly yeah. and this is another thing to to point out so el nino as, as well as having these these general con, um effects on you know australia and south america and other pacific um countries uh it does have a global impact too it generally el nino years are generally warmer globally um which Considering we have had record temperatures in 2023, doesn't bode well terribly for 2024. Um, so, yes, possibly we'll be looking for more, I guess, global records being broken in the, in the year ahead. Um, but there's also other weather effects that it tends to have. Um, just recently, I think, uh, I think it was in November, there were some floods in Somalia, in Africa, that have been linked to El Nino, and that's nowhere near the Pacific obviously, but mm. El Nino's effects carry on to the... It affects what's going on in the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean as well as what's in the Pacific. So it has a global impact in that sense. Uh, in terms of Australia, like I said, um, we are looking... We are still expecting... Um, they are still forecasting, I guess, drier conditions in the months ahead. Um, El Nino is believed to uh, to give us sort of more... 
I suppose what they call a more mobile um, extreme weather events. So what this means is that if you look at your southern areas like Melbourne, Adelaide, those sort of things, um, there is likely to be some extreme heat days, but they're not necessarily going to be last as long as they might in a non-El Nino year. So they won't the heat won't stick around in one place for a long time necessarily, but you will get those extremes of heat. So you probably can't look forward to some very hot days in the summer ahead. We might not get get you know extended um, heat waves. But um, look, it all depends on how these other factors play together. It is it is a complicated system, the weather and the climate, um, and people do like to try and I guess bet on what things what's going to happen. Apparently, some of the forecasts agriculturally have. Um, overestimated the impact of the current El Nino, and uh, it just goes to show that you know you do have to do your best, I suppose, to understand what's going on with the weather and climate. But it, look, it is also worth considering the fact that this is in the context of a warming global climate anyway. So we are tending to see, uh, you know, when you get these hot extreme heat events or extreme you know dry events, we might get they are exacerbated by the fact that we have had global temperature rises. Uh, the effect of climate change on El Nino overall is still unknown. It's believed that it's going to make it more um, more frequent or more severe El Ninos. But the main thing to observe is the fact that, as I said, El Nino itself is probably going to make climate change worse in the coming years. So that's not necessarily a great thing to look forward to. So not a happy Nino year. No, um, I'll take back my ho-ho-ho at the beginning of the, the episode. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.